Welcome to Unexpecting, a podcast brought to you by Hannah, the leading fertility support organization for Jewish people in the UK. I'm Dr. Romy Shulman, the clinical lead at Hannah, And I'm Shimon Schwab, a psychotherapist at Hannah. Over the course of this podcast, we'll be talking to experts, couples and religious leaders about the multi-layered challenges people face on their fertility journey. We offer practical, emotional and financial support to those couples on the sometimes complex paths towards parenthood. Head over to hannah.org.uk for more information. Thank you so much for listening in to another episode of Unexpecting, brought to you by Hannah. I'm Dr. Romy Schulman, Chartered Psychologist and Clinical Lead at Hannah. And I am Veronique Berman, Scientific Advisor to Hannah. Today, we are going to be exploring some of the most frequently asked questions about cycle and ovulation issues that seem to be impacting many couples in the Jewish community. We are privileged to be joined by consultant gynecologist Dr. Amanda Toza at the newly opened Aria Fertility Clinic. We are very grateful that Dr. Toza also generously volunteers her time as a member of our Hana Medical Advisory Panel. Welcome, Dr. Toza. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Would you like to add a little bit to your introduction so that our listeners can hear a little bit more about your expertise and interests? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing uh, fertility now for about, oh my goodness, over 20 years. And uh, so I've specialized in reproductive medicine, although originally I trained to do gynecology and obstetrics. Um, but I've dealt with all sorts of different types of fertility issues. So ranging from something simple, just investigations, right through to, of course, uh, IVF treatments and you know, pre-implantation genetic screening diagnosis. So um, yeah, I've got a lot of experience and uh, and had a lot of uh, patients and a lot of babies. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. So uh, one of the main parts of my role as clinical lead at Hana is to meet all the new clients that approach Hana, both couples and individuals. And we've noticed over time that there is definitely a pattern of certain questions that come up more often and certain recurrent themes that couples are concerned about. And these generally tend to relate to cycle disruption and ovulation concerns. So we've decided to focus a little bit on that today. The questions that come through can vary from women to have uh, women who have no cycles uh, to some who have very long or perhaps very short cycles, and some women who experience intermittent bleeding and have concerns about that. Um, and the one concern that can be particular to our community, the Jewish community, is the timing of ovulation and when where this might fall in relation to a couple's intimacy. So we would like to share some of these commonly asked questions with you today so that our listeners can perhaps learn a bit more um, and have a better understanding of, of what they're experiencing. We take a multidisciplinary approach in our support, taking care of both the physical side of the fertility journey as well as the emotional side, because we know that these challenges generally go hand in hand. Um, so I lead on putting in place the emotional support, and I work very closely with Dr. Berman, who is our scientific advisor, um, who provides ongoing support to our clinical team on, on the medical aspects of, of the journey. So Dr. Berman is here with us today, and she is going to share some of these medical questions um, with you. So Veronique, over to you. Thank you very much indeed. We have seen many women who um, 
are talking about having irregular cycles. And obviously, this makes planning conception quite difficult. And um, we'd be really interested to hear if you have any advice for these women. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, with the advent of uh, wonderful iPhones uh, and apps, uh, I think one of the most important things, of course, is to keep a record of uh, when that menstrual flow starts so that women can actually get some kind of idea how irregular their cycles are. Because sometimes they, you know, but they might be every 35 days, they might think they're irregular, but actually they're not too bad. They might be 31 days, 35 days, 36 days, which isn't too bad. So I think one, keeping a record is really important. The second thing is, I think it's really essential that women have some kind of understanding of what their cycle involves. In other words, we know that the only consistent time in a woman's cycle is from ovulation to bleed, which is about 14 days. So if you're tracking your cycle and you think, okay, well, look, actually, I'm having a sort of a 32-day cycle here, you are likely to bleed uh, 14 days early, which is day 18, um, and so on. So if you have a 28-day cycle, great, it's day 14. If you have a 35-day cycle, of course, it is always difficult because your cycle is determined by that post-ovulation time. And if your somebody has a 30-day cycle one month and a 38-day cycle the next month, it's much harder to try and pinpoint that ovulation time. So your alternative is to say, okay, I have these sort of cycles. Sometimes they're 30, 30 days, sometimes they're 35. And therefore, I'm going to try and monitor my own ovulation during urine testing. I mean, you know, urine testing can be of huge value to really pinpoint that time. And, and so if I've got a 30-day cycle and I'm likely to ovulate sort of around about day 16, I'd probably start those urine testing off around about day 13, day 12, 13, because they're expensive, these kids, so you can get through a lot of them. And also, you can get very obsessed with them. You know, patients can get super obsessed with doing ovulation kits, and, and sometimes you might they might miss the ovulation surge, and they haven't really, and they might, might have a very, very narrow LH window. So... It's really about trying to get things in perspective. See just how reg irregular those cycles are. And if you're kind of going between about day 30 to 36, well then, you know, you know you should be having intercourse somewhere between day 16, you know, up to day 22. So it's, you know, it, it can be a very obsessive process to go through, but at least you've got some kind of idea of when you're ovulating based on your dates. Right. I think that's really helpful because I think that what some of the feedback we get is that some women really have no idea of two things. One is when are they actually ovulating? And the second thing is what information should they actually be recording? And as you say, that the kits can often be quite anxiety inducing and therefore there becomes a lot of concern about which kits they should be using. Should they be yeah. using the urine kits? Should they be using the apps on their phone? Some like to use the temperature sensors that are monitoring their body temperature. And of course, those are yeah. sort of taking multiple readings during the whole course of their cycle. So I think really the confusion is about what should they be monitoring and what methodology should be used to do that monitoring. So I would monitor, I'd keep a menstrual diary, there's no doubt. So first day of bleed to first day of bleed, and that's the length of the cycle. And then 
I would sort of take an average or, or the, the lower end and the upper end and say, right, I'm probably ovulating somewhere between day 14 and day 22. And I'm going to have intercourse over that time. And, and that's how I'd approach it initially. So try and not get super stressed by it. When we're talking about doing ovulation kits, the ones I usually recommend are urine ones. And you're right, you can get different types. So you can get the, the ones that give like pregnancy kits that are two lines. You can get the lovely, you know, smiling and flashing face ones. And I think you've got to remember that if you get the flashing, smiley face ones, the flashing face um, is just the estrogen rising pre-ovulation. Um, and then you're looking for the static smiley face that's your LH surge. And then remembering that you're going to ovulate most likely the day after that. So lots of women like the sort of flashing and then the static smiley face because it's really obvious. Um, but again, it's not something I necessarily would super encourage women to go down that route because I still feel that if you get some idea of your cycle length and then sort of take the lowest and the upper upper limits and try just having intercourse around that time, you, you know, you're, you're not just trying to focus everything on one moment. Um, and I get that after people have been trying for some time, um, but I still think it's it's kind of good to not get too obsessed about those testing. It's the same as doing temperature monitoring. It's an incredibly time-consuming process that people can get quite obsessed with. Um, and I think what you really want to know is, are you ovulating or not? I mean, and then I suppose the only true way to do that is say, okay, I think this is what my cycle's like. I usually have a sort of, you know, 35-day cycle. I'm going to do a blood test, you know, seven days before that 35, uh, so on day 28, to see whether or not um, I've got a rise in progesterone level. If you have, great. And then I kind of just say, okay, that's worked for that cycle. It's most likely I'm going to be ovulating. So it's also really helpful from an emotional perspective because that also puts a lot of pressure on the couple in terms of, of being intimate together and when it's, you know, either stretched out for a long time or has to be very focused, as you say, on on one moment, it puts an incredible amount of pressure, particularly for couples who've been trying for some time. So I, I think this uh, sort of more more relaxed approach, I guess, is, is really helpful. I think one of the things that um, causes quite a lot of concern is the time frame. So for those that are able to quite accurately pinpoint their ovulation, there is a certain amount of concern of what is the time frame once they know they are ovulating, um, that they need to be intimate, What, how long have they got, you know, the fertile window, as I know some refer to it, what's the time frame? Yeah, so I suppose the answer is um, sperm can last for several days. We know that. The egg, however, um, has probably got a lifespan of about 48 hours maximum. Maximum. Um, so my time frame always is if you're, you know, from the point of ovulation, you've probably got the day of your ovulation, the following day, and then thereafter, uh, that egg is gone. So really, you know, sperm lasts can, can last several days. So leading up to ovulation is a better time as well to start trying um, so that because that sperm can hang around, whereas the egg just doesn't hang around. Um, and, you know, people often ask me, well, you know, how often should I should we be intimate? How how frequent should we be intimate? And I think, you know, one key thing is that we know that if 
if men leave sort of ejaculating for more than three days or so, then the sperm quality is not as good. So there needs to be that frequency leading up to ovulation in any case, just to ensure that that those sper- that sperm is good sperm. Um, so, you know, intercourse probably um, every other day at least, leading up to the point of ovulation, and of course ensuring you're having uh, being intimate on the day of, of ovulation is really important. But it is important to remember not to just save it all up for that, you know, that ovulation time, um, because the, I say the sperm is much better um, if you don't do that. So what can be done for women who do ovulate before the time that they're able to be intimate with their husbands? There are lots of reasons why that might be. Is there anything that can be done to manipulate? I, I'm, I know we've discussed before women who are attending the mikvah, the ritual bath, uh, for those yeah. who are monitoring their ovulation and the timing of that visit can often add an extra layer of um, anxiety and complexity to the picture. Yeah, I, you know, and I've seen quite a few women in that situation. And in fact, what we have done in those circumstances, um, when they've got a really very short cycle, and ovulation is, is really early, um, is in fact, I've, I've, I've cycle tracked. In other words, we've monitored the development of the follicle and we've actually given some uh, medication to suppress that ovulation process. Usually by about four, you know, 48 hours is enough to do that um, uh, and, and taken that approach that can be very successful because there's no natural way of delaying that ovulation process, unfortunately. Um, so for those women where it is really super difficult, um, if we catch the... Um, the follicle with an egg in by about sort of 14, 15 millimeters, we can suppress it just by a couple of days, just sufficient uh, and long enough to allow intimacy to, to happen. That's really useful. That's very helpful. And of course, you know, in the same way that there are a finite number of eggs, the eggs have a finite amount of time that they hang around. So that... Yeah, that's it. You know, so it's... Um, it, I think it's very stressful for women when they have that really... Well, well, it, it leaves them with an impossible situation um, that's really difficult to, for them to, well, they can't do anything about it. And um, so, yes, so there are ways around that sort of manip- and manipulating that that can be really helpful. Which is very, it's helpful and also reassuring at the same yes. time. Just to, to add that another reason that they might be missing that date because of mikvah might sometimes for some women is because they're they're bleeding for a long time. So um, can you just tell us a bit of this, something that we can, can, that can be done about that? Yeah, it's, um, so again, you know, there's a, a two-way approach to that. Um, of course, you can, you can uh, delay that ovulation process, as I've just explained. Trying to reduce the length of time of their menses is not as easy, but you can use things like uh, tranexamic acid. Now, tranexamic acid um, will reduce blood flow, and for some women, it'll shorten that cycle length. So, essentially, we, we'll use tranexamic acid uh, to reduce heavy flows, but it can also shorten that duration of flow as well. That might again just shift that uh, by a day or so uh, to allow uh, intimacy to to to, to occur. 
Um, so it is worth trying that approach as well. Look, you know, it's worth trying lots of things. Uh, and, uh, you know, if for some way it may be successful and others it may not, but it's, it's an easy thing to do. But again, you need to start that type of medication from the beginning of the bleed so that it re, it, it's got chance to, 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 to sort of, you know, reduce that flow rate and hopefully shorten that length of cycle. And of course, this is something that's only going to be possible with medical supervision and medical guidance. Yeah. This is not something yeah. that uh, you can try at home alone kind of thing. It's, it's yeah, very no. important. Absolutely. Uh, it's not, no. <laughs> no, no that, that, that's very helpful. So we often get asked by women who have mid-cycle bleeding or spotting, which of course is, is a cause for concern. Again, because of the um, halachic, the religious restrictions. And um, I wondered if you had any thoughts or ideas um, that might help these women with um, spotting and intermittent bleeding. Yeah, so I think, you know, in women who do have intermittent bleeding, the first thing is, of course, to get it checked out, to make sure there's nothing what I call pathological wrong. That sounds that sounds like something really sinister. I don't mean that at all. But sometimes there's a, a small erosion on the cervix. Sometimes there might be a polyp in the uterine cavity. So it's worth just getting a check. That's the first thing. Invariably, you know, everything looks entirely normal. And you say, yeah, that's great. That's all looks uh, fabulous. And, and the reason why some women can get uh, that intermenstrual spotting is actually, it's kind of, it's, it's sort of secondary to a changeover sometimes of the hormones. So the estrogen level after ovulation drops, the progesterone rises, and you can get this tiny sort of um, asynchrony there that you get a little bit of spotting. So it's not, um, of course, it's not a period, and it's not. Um, it's not a, uh, that type of, it's not a bleed as such, but it, um, it does cause anxiety. So it's difficult to, to do something specific from a gynecological point of view that's going to take that away. Um, usually it is very light, um, and usually doesn't last very long at all. Um, but let's say from a, and a, from a gynae point of view, if people, if women find they're getting it slightly later than ovulation, of course, it's not such a problem then because that time for intimacy has gone. Um, if they're getting it before they're actually ovulating or just, just prior, it, it's really hard. Um, and, and again, sometimes we can try giving a little bit of estrogen, um, say from about day 10 of the cycle, small amount, uh, that they can take into that sort of post-ovulatory stage that might alleviate it. But again, it's one of those things that we'd need to, you know, see and try. But there's possibilities that we can do something about that. So just moving on slightly, we know that there are some cases where ovulation issues can be related to PCOS. So that's polycystic ovarian syndrome. Can you talk us through the process of diagnosing PCOS? Yeah. Um, so polycystic ovarian syndrome uh, essentially is a diagnosis made on two of the following three being present, either uh, polycystic ovaries on ultrasound scan, uh, very irregular bleeds and elevated male hormone levels. So, uh, you know, by definition, there should be at least two of those factors there. Polycystic ovaries on scan is a really common finding, really, really common finding. And nobody should be labeled as having polycystic ovarian syndrome just because they've got polycystic ovaries on ultrasound scan. 
So the diagnosis essentially is made by scanning, by doing uh, hormone levels. And we're looking really at the male hormone, elevated male hormone levels, of uh, testosterone, DHEA, etc. Um, and all, their, of course, their menstrual history. So that's the diagnosis. And patients may have other symptoms of the syndrome, such as uh, increased hair growth, unwanted hair growth, um, you know, n not all people with polycystic ovarian syndrome are overweight. They're, they can be very thin as well. Um, so, yeah, again, it's a, it's a medical diagnosis um, that they need to be seen for. So for some who are experiencing um, interruption or ovulation issues, um, they may have been told that they have cysts on their ovaries, but that doesn't therefore automatically mean that they have PCOS. And, and we do hear quite a lot of that. Yeah, I hate the word cysts, <laughs> you know, and of course, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome, I, I hate it. It's an old, it's such an old fashioned word in many ways, because they're not cysts. They are antrophollicals. And of course, you know, when we look and when we scan um, women and we're looking at their ovarian reserve, we're doing something called an antrophollicle count. So what we're measure, what we're sort of counting are the number of those, what other people call cysts, <laughs> in their ovaries. So one good news for women with polycystic ovaries is they have an amazing ovarian reserve. They have, they really do. It's really super high. Um, so there's something positive to be taken away. Uh, they do. And they literally do have an excellent ovarian reserve. But they, of course, that word cyst conjures up all sorts of horrible things in your head. And, and actually, they are just antral follicles. And there are just more than 15 of them in each ovary to make that diagnosis. Is this the GP that's going to be making this diagnosis? Or is this the gynecologist? Because that's something that worries people quite a lot is how are they going to do these investigations? Who's going to do them? Yeah, I mean, ideally, I think if this is a diagnosis you're making in relation to particularly to fertility, then I think you're, the best route to take uh, would be to see a fertility specialist because at the end of the day, in many many ways, polycystic syndrome doesn't cause many pe people much harm, and it doesn't, you know. There are potentially other issues associated with it that might cause problems, but if it's, a, if it's predominantly to achieve a pregnancy, uh, then I would go down that route straight away of seeing a fertility specialist who deals with polycystic syndrome so that the right approach can be taken uh, to achieve a pregnancy um, so because you want a diagnosis and you want a management it's okay having the diagnosis but you also you know women want to know well okay I've got this what do I do now what's the next best thing for me to do um, so they could start off with the GP to get tests done uh, blood tests done uh, but ultimately they're going to need to have a scan um, and other and management done by uh, a reproductive medicine specialist Right. So the, the process starts initially with the GP. So they're going to need to get a referral. So really their first point of contact is, is their GP and their GP can do some of the blood tests while they're waiting to organize the referral and organize the scans. That would be the appropriate route to take. Absolutely. That, that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. And in terms of um, investigations, um, something that's really quite important is for them for couples to understand the order that the investigations need to take place. And I'm asking specifically, how urgent is it for both members of the couple to have investigations? Um, often there's quite a lot of anxiety about the order that things should take. 
Yes. Okay. Uh, and that's a really good question because this is this is about a couple, not not just the women. Absolutely. And and I think that often, um, you know, if there's say an irregular cycle, you kind of we we kind of assume that perhaps that's the issue that's going on, and forget that actually that you know we do need uh, the man it, it, with this as well. So I think when it comes to uh, doing test investigations, one, it depends upon um, if uh, the woman has got a nice regular cycle, are there no other issues, that they can have intimacy, uh, then I would start some test investigations, and depends, depending on their age as well, um, I would start in test investigations uh, after a year of trying to conceive. Um, if they're older, say they're, they're sort of, you know, above the age of 37, I'd probably take that six months because you might want to pick up any issues. And those investigations for me include a pelvic scan to make sure there's nothing in the pelvis that's abnormal, hormone testing to check that woman's ovarian reserve, um, and, and, and a sperm test so that, um, you know, you, you, these are things that are, that may be obviously wrong that we can do something about. Um, so that's the approach I would take. But if there's an irregular cycle, of course, that may sort of say, okay, well, we need to start investigating the woman. But when I'm investigating a woman, I'll go straight and investigate the man as well. Because what you're going to do then potentially is say, okay, well, we might need to get some treatment for the irregular cycles. But I wouldn't do that without doing a sperm test as well. So that leads me on to another question, which is often causes some concern. Who's going to do which investigations? So, for example, for the male investigations, who's likely to be doing those? Well, again, the GP can do those. The GP can send off a, a, a sperm test. Now, for me, it doesn't matter, even if that's a very basic sperm test, um, because you really want to just get a feel, is, is there sperm there? <laughs> Um, kind of the sort of amount uh, that's there and if there's anything grossly abnormal um, because if there is or there's some concern you can always get a more detailed semen analysis done. Most, most GPs now will refer in and most most places do a really good semen analysis. There's very few just microbiologists doing semen analysis these days so you usually get a reasonable um, semen analysis back that's sufficient. So GP. So I'd go, I'd go to the GP for all the initial uh, tests and, and to get referred in for a sperm test, for sure. I know this could be an episode in itself, mm. but I wondered whether in a nutshell you can tell us what couples can expect when they are referred to the fertility clinic. So their GP is um, usually someone they're familiar with or, you know, they're part of a group practice and they will have seen one or many of the doctors there. So, you know, as you said, for the blood tests and for the semen analysis, they can do all of that through their GP service. But then once they're going to be referred to a fertility clinic, what can they expect? Okay. Um, it's very useful if they bring all the information with them, that's for sure. So, so Know, to, to avoid having to repeat certain things and it's really good to have that information. So the fertility clinic they can expect a, a full history uh, to be taken um, uh, for sure uh, a pelvic examination in terms of a, a pelvic scan um, if they've not had one before. If they've had one in the, recent, in the past six months and again there's no need to repeat lots of things and, and, and I don't think we should be repeating lots of things unnecessarily. Um, and then uh, sort of a, an overview, or they should be given an overview of what we, what we feel might be 
potential further investigations that might be needed. Um, perhaps we don't. Perhaps we feel that treatments might be needed and a discussion surrounding what those treatments might uh, entail. So if I was going to a fertility clinic with some test investigations already there, my expectation uh, would be, yeah, somebody had read, read things that they would take a history from me. They would suggest any further tests that I might need, but they would also in that, if, if there were test investigations already done, come up with some kind of management plan on how I was going to move forward uh, with fertility, what was the right way for me to move forward. So, you know, there doesn't need to be repeated visits to the hospital. I don't, you know, I don't see any value in that because what the couples want, they want a baby. They want it tomorrow, not, you know, not in two years time. They don't want to do a million and one more test investigations that they've got to keep coming backwards for. And I don't think that's necessary. We don't need to do lots of things. What they want is a, is a plan of management and that's what they should feel they've walked away with. Um, and of course, all of this is wrapped up with quite a lot of anxiety as well. And, and therefore, yeah. you know, one is being armed with the information is quite helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and that's, of course, part of why we offer the ongoing counselling that we offer at Hana to support the couples through that on the emotional side of things um, and practically yeah. where we can. But at the end of the day, we as we are today, we're always relying on, on information from the medical professionals, which is uh, you know the most important for this process at the end of the day. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about uh, ARIA? Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the, the ethos or the concept here at ARIA is, is very much to concentrate on, uh, you know, the individual couples and try and offer them exactly what I said, a, a, a sort of a more rapid approach to how we might manage this. That doesn't mean a rapid approach to treatment necessarily, but a, a plan. And I think it's essential um, that couples have a plan because time goes quickly and you really need to feel that you're moving forward. And it is really important that, that couples do move forward. I also think it's really important that couples see the same people each time they come. They don't want to see somebody different, somebody strange. Again, this is a very personal treatment. You know, couples divulge incredibly personal information. They don't want to keep divulging it. Uh, and and the, that continuity of care is, I think, what's really, really important uh, with fertility treatment because it, it, it does cause a great deal of anxiety that, that in terrible desperation of am I ever going to have a child that question you know will I ever be uh, uh, you know will we be parents it is really hard so I think you know as a as a service what we're trying to do at ARIA is is offer those patients um not just personalized treatment but but sort of individualized in in with respect to uh, following them throughout their care by a very small team uh, so that they are, they know who they're coming to see every time, um, and 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 it's it's much better for us as in the medical profession to to see those people again because you get to know people, um, and you know you can deal with them much quicker. You know their history. Uh, it's it's greatly advantageous for both sides. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm sure that we could uh, sit here and carry on chatting for hours, but we are aware of how valuable your time is. Uh, this has really been hugely informative and uh, we hope certainly that it's shed some light for our listeners on these questions and also given some reassurance on these common questions that do come up. 
Um, Dr. Toza and Dr. Berman, thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, of course, if any listeners would like any further information on any of these topics, or if you have any concerns about your own fertility journey, give us a call on our Khana helpline, or you can contact us through our website at khana.org.uk. Thank you for listening to Unexpecting, brought to you by Khana. If you are struggling on your fertility journey, head over to khana.org.uk and get in touch with one of our experts or call the helpline on 0208-201-5774. With Khana, you are not alone. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe, rate, review and share on social media. We really hope you'll join us again soon.